This is Coping with Dystopia from Dare to be Grey. This is the show about finding ways to flip the script on our dark times. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today we're coping with falling back to the 50s. And this voice you're about to hear is Dorothea Redeye, who, in an act of defiance, published an LGBTQ plus friendly children's book in Hungary at a time when that was definitely going to cause trouble. The good kind of trouble. So what happened was um, one of the members of, of a far-right party, which is in the parliament, unfortunately, she made a media event where she tore apart the book and put, put the pages through a, a, a paper shredder. That was the thing that catapulted the, <laughs> the whole um, thing into extreme reactions on one hand, extreme popularity on the other hand. The book became a bestseller, like, immediately, and is still selling very well. Dorothea is a Hungarian academic and LGBTQ plus activist. Time magazine listed her as one of 2021's 100 most influential people for her work on a children's book that set in motion a debate over human rights in the Central European country. The book is called, and I looked up this pronunciation, please don't murder me, my Hungarian listeners, Meseorzag uh, Mindenki, or Fairyland is for everyone. It's a retelling of classic fairy tales, only this time the heroic children are disabled, they're Roma, LGBTQ+, etc., etc., more of her amazing story in a few minutes, but now, as always, let's bring the Dare to be Grey duo, Hannah and Jordi. Hello, guys. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. So today's show is called Coping with the Return to the 50s. That was the title that I think struck us that fit, fit it most, especially with uh, the uh, end of Roe versus Wade by the American Supreme Court, right? I mean, we say that that only affects America, but, you know, I'm sure it had its ripple effects elsewhere in the world. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, of course, we've got to start off uh, this podcast by discussing the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States. Um, it's a really, really interesting time because support for abortion without restrictions is actually at a record high for the Democrats in America. And on top of that, between 55 to 60 percent of American people actually just wanted to leave Roe v. Wade as it was. But despite this and because of that absolutely insane justice system in America, it would ended up just being five justices able to decide the fate for millions of women in the States. So yeah, we can absolutely see a regression of rights happening in the US. But as you said, Jonathan, it, it is an international problem. It's not just in the United States. Yeah, because I'm afraid that the statistics on this one look pretty grim again. Um, the Freedom House has measured a steady decline in democracy and human rights since 2006. In 2020 alone, 73 countries declined, according to their indicators, and only 28 improved. And sorry to break this to you specifically, Jonathan, the US is one of the countries that suffered the largest decline between 2010 and 2020. But yeah, you know, authoritarianism seems to be on the rise everywhere, and human rights are definitely under pressure. Pretty much everywhere, right? Pretty much everywhere. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Jordi. And it's not just abortion rights, of course, in the US that are aggressing. Uh, the Justice Clarence Thomas has said this is only the beginning with the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And he next wants to reconsider gay rights and contraception rulings. And as we are constantly seeing, these rulings are pretty much affecting minor- minority groups the worst. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got some friends in Hungary and here listening to their stories. It's it's so wild. And it's such a classic playbook, right? You go after those minority groups, the people without a voice. So you implement some laws against LGBTQ plus communities, migrants. Um, you set up a pretty anti-EU campaign. Combine that with tight control by Viktor Orban over the media landscape. And you got a very toxic mix resulting in closing universities, banning some forms of education. And, you know, it's not a one-day thing. It's not an event that happens in one day. It's slowly chipping away at freedoms, creating this one-sided narrative on everything, controlling that media so you can disseminate that narrative. You know, The Handmaid's still as a dystopia sounds pretty believable after listening to, to their stories. Yeah. Why do people say The Handmaid's Tale was supposed to be... Uh... You know, a warning to people and not a guide as to how you should do these things, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, it makes a Hungarian coverage is because, you know, the news is controlled by the government. It makes it incredibly one-sided. But you know what my question is, is really is what about here in Western Europe? Because we're, you know, we're pretty self-congratulatory here in Western Europe. We think that we're really open-minded. But is that true? Well, I think in some cases you could say it is, you know, we've we've just had uh, Pride Month finishing up and across all of uh, Western Europe and um, a lot of other countries around the world, um, there's been um, lots of Pride protests everywhere. But but actually, we've also just had the trans rights protest in, in London uh, recently. And despite 20,000 people attending, there was hardly any news coverage of it. Yeah, that's really weird. That's really weird. I mean, can we just speculate and give like the news organizations the benefit of the doubt and say that trans rights are just not newsworthy enough i mean can we ever give the news agents the the benefit of the doubt i don't really think so i i mean normally news surrounding trans people is it, it tends to be portrayed pretty negatively whenever there's something negative that's happened the, the news are going to jump on it but now we have something that's actually really positive to report on and it's not being reported on so you have to question why that is yeah that is very interesting i never thought of it that way you're right whenever trans news are, are is in the news it's pretty negative isn't it jordy what about, and I think this is very interesting, and if I could just change the subject a little bit to make it closer to the topic that we're going to be talking about today, because we're talking about a children's book, right? And a thing that I keep hearing a lot about is the fact that books are being banned all over the place. And I think that people on the left and the right are sort of pointing fingers at each other, accusing each other of banning books. I mean, is that true? Is this happening? Or is this perception? Well, I think it's very real in some countries, at least. And, you know, um, I'm a historian and fighting with books or over books is always a sign of democracy in trouble. I don't want to go back to uh, what happened in uh, Nazi Germany, of course. But uh, when we look at the United States now, for example, um, history books with so-called critical race theory are getting banned. Apparently now fairy tales are in trouble in Hungary. And, you know, often the arguments that are being made is that they're trying to protect or care for the children. But in reality, these are often far-right authoritarian moves affecting 
education, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, while suppressing any opposition. So, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting to see that we're now debating or fighting over school books because of these ideologies we have. Mm. Which is, as, as you were going to, and I think that you've brought this up and I'm going to bring it up now. It's, it's weird because it, it accuses people of being uh, globalist and uh, people on the right want to be anti-globalist. But of course, uh, also people who are on the right, especially if they're extreme, are quite globalist because they're making trips over to Hungary to sh so that they can see how Viktor Orban is slowly taking over every aspect of the country. You get a lot of Americans over there now, but also plenty of Western European politicians who are members of extremist far-right parties also going over to Hungary and making shaking hands with Viktor Orban and saying, how'd you do it, Viktor? Can we do it that way in our country too? So they're almost taking lessons from him, right? And yeah, that's that's pretty scary, right? Because now we can expect that this Roe v. Wade debate is going to be exported again to Europe. Um, so that's something to, to watch out for, I think. So, shall we move to our guest? Yes, please. My name is Dorotya Redai. I'm in Budapest. Uh, that's where I live, Budapest, Hungary. I'm 49 years old. And Dorotea has spent most of her career as a researcher at the Central European University Democracy Institute in Budapest. Well, it's kind of in Budapest these days. She's also an activist with the Labrige Lesbian Association, which published Fairyland is for Everyone. And, of course, she did this while working in Hungary, a European country currently under the anti-gay, anti-freedom of speech, bigoted, authoritarian rule of Viktor Orban's Fidesz party. Dorotea is openly gay, she's an intellectual, and you'd think that that would be enough to make people want to fight, but truth be told, Dorotea was always, always an activist. My younger brother is, is getting a lot of privileges because he's a boy, and I'm not getting that because I'm a girl, and I found that very unfair. Or I was upset, for example, when um, my relatives, uh, all the relatives in the countryside, they were using this like archaic, very gendered language, which makes women sound very like diminutive and um, not equally valuable as men. And I just couldn't understand why this is the case. I mean, how, how is that possible? So I became a feminist around age 10. Did you even know the word feminist at, at 10? No, I didn't know until about, about uh, in my 20s at university, I figured out what feminism is. Well, you were like, oh, hey, that's me. Yes, exactly. It was like, oh, feminism is quite coherent in uh, explaining what's wrong with the world. And then I just realized, oh, I, that's it. That's it. Yeah. So before we get to the story of the children's book, I asked Dorothea about her own story, about what it's like to grow up during the waning days of communism, to come out and build a career in a newly democratic Hungary, only to see the country descend again into a new kind of anti-intellectual parliamentary tyranny. With apologies for the quality of the audio sometimes, Dorothea told me the moment she decided to come out to her family. Well, she didn't exactly decide to come out. I was outed. Um, I was preparing to tell her I, I was into a relationship for two years then and I, it was about time to tell her but I, I, the reason why I didn't tell her earlier because I knew exactly how she was going to react and I was not ready to handle that earlier 
there was a moment when my mother's husband, third husband, who was luckily a really nice guy, they are still together. His um, son told my mother totally innocently, because he, he, he he's a straight guy, but he goes to prides as a pride marches as a support supporter. And totally innocently, he told my mother, like, oh, actually, I saw Dory at the Pride. And, and so my mother was like, what, what were you doing there? And then I thought, okay, I took, took a deep breath and I said, okay, this is the moment to tell her. And um, yeah, it was awful. And I said, well, I was at the Pride because, uh, because I'm a lesbian. And <laughs> she was totally shocked. And um, we were in our country house for two days for the weekend. And for two days I had to listen to her, like various theories about what went wrong with me. And what did she do wrong? And there were all sorts of really amazing theories. Uh, so, yeah, it was a very painful period for a very long time. I got a lot of, like, verbal abuse for this. And, yeah, well, all sorts of things. And, and she also kind of incited my grand... I was living with, with my grandmother at the time. And um, she incited also my grandmother and the two of them were, like, making my life unbearable. So I moved out. Uh, at some point, and that was really uh, was about time to move out because that's that's when my like normal life started. <laughs> um, so it was very unpleasant, and and she she didn't uh, accept it, and she uh, she tried to convince me that this is not the case and so on, and, and then what about the grandchildren? And I told her, like, listen, when I was 18, I told you that I'm not going to get married. I had no idea I was a lesbian. I just knew that I don't want to get married and don't want to have children. So that's it. I mean, you should get over it. And uh, But she didn't, of course. She's still making comments sometimes, although now she's happy because she has other grandchildren. Um, but it was really difficult, and then there was an even more difficult time when my grandmother died, and and my mother uh, just messed up uh, the the inheritance of the apartment, and she told me that I I can't get the whole apartment because I'm not uh, married and I don't have children, and uh, this was uh, contrary to our earlier verbal agreement. So there was there was a very big conflict about the property. It was really ugly and so I, I uh, it was it depressed me so much I decided to not to talk to her for a while and that lasted for about seven years and then yeah 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 um, yeah and then I then I, I decided that maybe I, I can I can try again. And she, she changed. She cha it worked. Uh, she changed her behavior. She didn't change her thinking. She's still homophobic, but she knows that she has to behave. And that's the maximum I can get from her. I know her. Uh, and as long as she's behaving, you know, it's, that's fine. Uh, I can't hope for, for more from her. 
Yes, yes, yes. So now we are fine, you know, on an everyday level. I mean, we, we communicate, I, I visit them sometimes. Uh, it's all right. Uh, I, I was having uh, a partner at the time when I, when I uh, stopped communication with her again. So she came to visit us and then she invited my partner for Christmas. That was a really big thing from her. And uh, so she did change uh, her behavior, really. 2017. So, so for five years now we are sort of okay. And my father, he was always um, always accepting. I, when I told him, he just said, you know, you are my daughter and I love you and, and it's important for me that you are happy. And Dorothea began to engage in activism at the beginning of the 2000s, and at first it looked like gay rights were making a lot of progress in Hungary. Each year, the Pride marches grew and grew and went off without a hitch. Then, in 2007, things changed. But there were far-right people, you know, throwing objects and you know, shouting um, <clears throat> homophobic slurs and threatening people. And then the next year, in, in, in 2008, there was a really organized uh, attack against the Pride. So the police drew up, you know, fences and, 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 and a big line of police trucks on the two sides of the marchers. So to prevent, like, there were about 2,000 extremists outside. So And then they, they were attacking in, in various ways and beating up of people after the march. So that was the time when, when, when these um, far-rightists really came out with their homophobic agenda. And after that, for about 10 years, the Pride was very much protected or like overprotected by the police. So we had to march between fences, which was really silly, you know, that we were isolated. And I think it was in... 2019, when the police finally understood that it shouldn't be the marchers who should be fenced off, but the, but the fascists. And uh, well, let me since just, then, let me just um, take you back to the 2007-2008 march. Were, were you marching then? Yes. Yeah. What was that like when they started to attack? It was awful. It was very, very scary. It was really traumatizing for a lot of people, most of us. Well, how did you feel? I mean, we, we were trying to protect ourselves and each other from, you know, from eggs and, you know, I don't know what. We were carrying umbrellas, you know, and so, like, it was like trying to physically protect ourselves, you know, putting shawls in front of our faces, you know, in, in case there is, a, you know, some sort of a sting bomb or um, whatever. There were all sorts of, like, handmade... Um, objects that they threw in and, and they were they were chanting very loudly that was probably the most scary like like you know faggots should die and stuff like that faggots should die yeah dirty faggots you know oh the, yeah that kind of stuff what did yeah. you think when you heard that and really shocking you know because because after the, those peaceful years of prize this was really shocking that this this can happen how come that this can happen? We were not used to uh, this uh, aggressivity and uh, the level or the volume of hatred before. You were surprised. We were expecting that things would happen because in the previous year there was a smaller, there were smaller scale attacks, but but 
you know, we were all like, okay, but I'm not afraid I will go to March anyway. But it was really scary. When did you realize that actually the anti-gay movement in Hungary was becoming more organized, more vocal, more... That's, that was the time. Yeah. So that, that's when they, they started to like really seriously organize themselves in those years. Right. 2006, 7, 8. Which was at the same time when, when, when politics became more uh, LGBT friendly. So in 2009 we got uh, the registered partnership, which is not exactly the same rights as marriage, but kind of close. And and uh, socialist liberal politics of the time were 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 much more, you know, open and LGBT friendly. So we and we had more visibility. This is when this polarize. That's when this polarization started. So as as we were getting more visibility, extremists were getting more organized and more aggressive, and it, this is still uh, the case. So the well, social polarization around LGBT issues is very very strong. Well, if the politics may have been getting more friendly, but then suddenly that all changed quite radically, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What, what yeah. happened? In 2010, when Fidesz government and Orbán came to power, they did some things quite soon. For example, changing the constitution and the family law to redefine you know, marriage as a, a union of a man and a woman and defining family as a, a, you know, two uh, so parents as a man and a woman and uh, with children. That was the definition of the new definition of family. Yeah, and also and and uh, NGOs, including Labris and other human rights NGOs, were attacked in 2014, like administratively attacked. So they were or like bureaucratically attacked. They they were trying to prove that we are misusing money, which turned out not to be the case. But it was half a year of hassling, and and uh, it was terrible. And then in two, in twenty fifteen, uh, the refugee crisis came, and then uh, so the refugees were the the main enemy, and then George Soros became the main enemy who established Central European University in Hungary, and and in 2018, the Central European University had to leave the country because they, because in legislation to make its operation possible was introduced. And I was, uh, I mean, Central European University is, is my home uh, University. I'd, I'd been there for like 20 years now and uh, in various capacities like MA student, PhD student, you know, research assistant, researcher, uh, tutor, whatever. I'm, I was also teaching a course for a couple of years. So, and I'm, I'm still affiliated uh, there. And um, so that, that was really a big... Uh, that was also very traumatic, and so so this enemy creation started in in, in around twenty fourteen twenty fifteen, and then then in twenty nine twenty nineteen was the year when when 
when this like open like homophobic turn came so when when uh, <clears throat> leading politicians started to talk about how homosexuals are like pedophiliacs and so on and then in 2020 uh, on the first day of the first covid emergency governance uh, like governance by decree practically they introduced the law to to um, uh, to ban uh, the right of, of uh, legal gender change for trans people and which was possible before and um, can I ask you for a moment, Dorothea? We were, well, well, all we these, were waiting. Oh, I'm sorry. What were you going to say? I apologize. No, we were waiting for what's going to happen with our school program because there have been uh, there there was talk about how to make it, uh, how to ban it, <laughs> <laughs> and and we knew that this is going to happen sooner or later. You mean you mean the gender studies program um, that you work for, that you teach for? No, 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 no. We no. What do you no, mean? Yeah, that's another thing. No, I mean that in Labris we have a, a school program. Ah. And uh, this is the les the lesbian organization that you volunteer for. Yes. yes? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. 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 And you are connected yes. with the Central European University, and you have a program there, but you feel like it's going to be made legally impossible for that to continue. It's already legally impossible. Gender studies programs in Hungary were banned in 2018. Uh, right. And the university moved to Vienna the same year. Uh, and the pro gender studies program and, of course, all the other programs are, are functioning there. Uh, I'm not affiliated with the gender studies department at the moment. You're not? No. Where do you work? Oh, um, there is a, um, a research institute called Democracy Institute, which was put together from the research groups of the university. Uh, and that remained in Budapest, so that, that this research institute di didn't move to Vienna, and that, that's where I'm working. Now, during all this period that Viktor Orban came into power and things really changed for LGBTQ plus people in, in Hungary, it went from being something that was more and more tolerated, more and more acknowledged, more and more legalized within the framework of the country, to almost overnight uh, the whole tone of government's attitude changing, making things more illegal. Was there a moment when you got scared? Um, not scared, but um, but it has happened several times that I, I just uh, felt that the, the, there's no hope. So as long as this government is, is in power, um, it will just get worse. And that I should, uh, it would be better to just leave the country for a few years at least and live somewhere else. Because as someone working in, an, in, a, in a lesbian organization, our life has just totally changed in the past two years. It's, uh, it's totally turned upside down. It's very hard to manage the, you know, you always have to be alert, you know, waiting for what's going to happen next. What happened next in 2020 was something totally unexpected. Despite the rise of a semi-fascist government, routine attacks by right-wing groups, and the passage of repressive anti-gay laws, Dorotea and the Labrige Lesbian Association decided this was the right moment 
to publish a children's book in which everyone was seen. Fairyland is for everyone. I asked Dorothea if anyone called her crazy. No, not during the process. No, nobody knew about the process. Uh, not true, not true. Once I was invited to the national propaganda TV to talk about it and <laughs> before publication and um, for about three days, I was the hero of the LGBT community because I had to like uh, struggle with these homophobes and people literally congratulated me for coming out alive from the TV studio. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's how it started. But the idea came out organically from our school program, thinking about, because our school program uh, addresses mostly uh, teenagers or like um, secondary school age young people, and we were thinking of how to talk to younger children about these issues. And we thought like, oh, a fairy tale book would be the best to, to reach uh, younger children. So that's how it came. And then it's an anthology. It was written by 17 different authors. Now, I, I, am I correct in thinking that there are laws in Hungary that specifically prohibit young children being exposed to ideologies uh, that are based on gay and lesbian ideas? Is that correct? No, there are, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, after we published the book... Um, Last summer, they, uh, the book was published in, in 2020, in September, and then the, the law came last summer to restrict access for younger, young people you know, to, to information about LGBT people. Do you think it was in direct reaction to your book? I mean, the book was an excuse for introducing this law, but I believe that it's not, it's not you know, it, it, something like that would have happened anyway. Because before we published the law, there were plans to somehow regulate, you know, uh, school programs like this and, you know, uh, so access for young people to information. It, it was, it started before our book was published. So <clears throat> you publish your book in 2020. It comes out. What is the reaction in Hungary? But the reaction, I mean, we did expect some extremist reactions because uh, we have had quite a lot of extremist attention for the previous years, for our school program especially, but we didn't expect the volume. So what happened was um, one of the members of, of a far-right party, which is in the parliament, unfortunately, she made a media event where she tore apart the book and put, put the pages through a, a, a paper shredder. That was the thing that catapulted the, <laughs> the whole um, thing into extreme reactions on one hand, extreme popularity on the other hand. The book became a bestseller like immediately and is still selling very well. By the end of this year, it's going to be published in 10 different languages. Um, <laughs> On, on, on the, the bad side, so to say, after this um, shredding performance, the government politicians came with their own homophobic talks. Orban made a speech in which he said Hungary is very tolerant with LGBT people. I mean, that's his opinion. Hungary is very tolerant with LGBT people, but there's a red line not to cross. You should leave our children alone. 
and this was the war cry. So, so from then came all this uh, conflation of pedophilia and homosexuality, all this like legal abuse, so to say, of 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 LGBT people. So um, adopting children was was restricted after that to to married couples. Uh, and so on, because it was possible as an LGBT person, you could adopt children as a single person. Now you cannot. Yeah, you're you're shaking your head with with sadness and frustration when I'm looking at you now because I can see you, like like it's almost unbelievable. I mean, you cannot uh, imagine in advance what such a government, such a such a way of thinking. Uh, can do because it's totally undemocratic. You know, we are, we are Democrats. We are thinking in democratic terms. It's it's hard to envision what this authoritarian kind of politics will do. How bad did it get? Sometimes we get a message like you should you should die or you should fuck off, but not but not threats. Just. Uh, you are dirty, rotten, pedophiles, blah, blah, blah. But these are very similar messages, and we don't get much of them, actually. My gosh. But but even so, you released your book, and when the book came out, I'm sure you were hoping it was going to have one kind of a reception and one kind of an impact on society. But in the end, it, it actually kind of ricocheted, at least legally, within Hungary, at least while this government is here. I mean, how do you feel about how that turned out? Well, we, we didn't expect to make such a big impact, so in the positive sense. So the book actually became a symbol in Hungary for protesting against the government, protesting against authoritarian ruling, protesting against discrimination and, you know, the supporting human rights and so on. So it, it, it's not just a book anymore. Yeah, so this this gave us a, a totally different position in in I mean uh, compared with how visible we were before. Now we are way more visible, and this is changing the organization. Because then now we have to keep visible. We need more resources, you know, for communications and so on, and, and to, so more people to do this multiplied amount of work. So it's it's changing the organization as well. How's the book selling? Oh, great! Um, <laughs> up to now, it's been sold in about uh, thirty-three thousand copies, which is really a big number in the Hungarian children's book market. And outside of Hungary, is it selling? Yeah, uh, it depends a lot on the publisher, like how the publisher can advertise the book. Like, for example, in Germany, uh, the book is published by the publisher of Stern magazine, which Ooh, is that's like big. this. And they are advertising it everywhere, and it's selling really amazingly. They they are doing they are preparing the third print now, so like they they have sold already like thirty thousand copies in since March, so in, in just three months. Uh, in other countries, uh, I mean, it varies. Uh, uh, I was expecting that that in Poland there will be a big scandal about the book, but there wasn't. Somehow politicians didn't notice, so so the Polish edition is not not selling so well. Uh, I, I mean, it kind of Tortia, it kind of turned you into an international figure. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Oh, it was not the plan in my life. <laughs> no. I can see. And, uh, I can see from your whole physicality that doing interviews with people like me for you 
is something you feel like you have to do, but it's a bit of a painful experience. Is is this correct? It's not painful. It's just um, that's not how I was uh, living my life before, and I had to I had to cope with this, learn to cope with this in the process. At the same time, I I do enjoy you know popularity sometimes, <laughs> but. So I, I became practically a full-time activist, which I never wanted to be, because it's very important for me to divide my my time between activism and and, and uh, scholarly work. And now I'm like full-time activist, and I, I hope that I can return to this like division of time the way I would like it. But it will take some more time, I know. But eventually, I guess it will happen. Can I ask you? Would you do it again? Mm, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, I think, yeah, yeah. You know, when this political, when the thing exploded, people started to talk about issues that they didn't really talk about. They started to talk about how children's sexuality develops, you know, whether you can teach someone to be homosexual, which, which uh, conservatives try to make people believe that you can do that. Of course you can't. But, you know, so people started to debate these things about childhood sexuality, which which was a taboo topic before. And I think that's very important. So a lot of people who uh, didn't do anything actively to protest this regime, they got a tool to protest with. So, you know, they, they went to bookshops to buy the book, posted it on Facebook and so on. There, there were some physical attacks by extremists against uh, shop assistants who were selling the books and people went to, you know, to care for them. They took them chocolates and so on and went to, to give them support, emotional support and so on. So a lot of things happened which a lot of people started to understand that LGBT people and LGBT rights are not just, you know, some, okay, let's give more right to this minority group, but like part of democracy. So now there are there's so many supporters of LGBT causes. It, ha- it never happened before. When this law was introduced, you know, in a week, I think 130,000 people signed the protest petition. It has never happened before. And at the latest, the referendum, the homophobic referendum, which was held together with the elections, you know, um, we campaigned to convince people to vote in an invalid way so that the referendum doesn't become valid. And 1.7 million people voted invalidly. That was the result of, of the campaign of a coalition, a broad coalition of LGBT organizations and human rights advocacy organizations. It was very successful. So a lot of people understood that this, this is not okay. It's a little revolution in a sense, you know, what we made, not us alone, but the book was a very important part of it. Uh, and your father, does he know about this? Sure, yeah, yeah. He's he's very proud of me, and, and uh, yeah, when I got this international fame, so to say, he, he was a bit uh, worried. Uh, he thought that maybe some extremist, uh, insane person will attack me, but then it never happened. So now he's not worried anymore. Viktor Orban won the election again in April of 2022. This year, just recently, how'd you feel about that? Well, we were all shocked, of course. We were hoping that this time won't happen. 
it's depressing. I mean, I can feel the long term how this regime sucks your energy away, how it how it makes you feel like makes you feel low and hopeless and 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 it it, it just gets into your system that you have to live in this feudalistic fascist system and you have to cope with it and yeah i know i should pack my suitcase and just go but i'm almost 50 years old it's not so simple to start my life again in other in another country so what should i do yeah it's it's a very heavy feeling of uh, of having to live in a country and then people want this I mean, they got two-thirds majority, but means about half of the voters, because that's how they changed the election law. So they get two-thirds majority with, it doesn't even have to be 50%, 40% of the votes is enough for a two-thirds majority. So like, let's say half of the voters really want this. Like, it's, it's very hard to understand why. It's difficult to cope with, really. And that actually brings us to the last part of this whole discussion. Remember when I said five pieces of advice for coping with dystopia? I think for coping, it's, it's, it's important to take care of yourself and, and try to see a bit from the outside, like how, how you are doing uh, in, this, in this system and, and notice when, when it's going wrong, you know, when, 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 you, when you are getting maybe depressed or having other problems so to notice and take care of it because because um you cannot the other thing you cannot really rely on other people now because everybody is feeling really bad so they won't be able to support you because they feel like you feel uh, and so you really have to take care of yourself much more than in a good democratic regime i think so so number one take care of yourself Yes, yes, and, and, and try not to rely on people who are feeling the same as you because they are not able to help you, probably. They have their own problems. Yes. Number two. And the other thing is that you should still fight. I mean, we mustn't give up. You fight in your own way. You don't have to be a full-time activist, but you can do little protests, you know, so you don't have to start a revolution, but... Uh, just express that you disagree. So number two is keep fighting. And it sounds like number three is do what you can. You don't have to start the revolution. Yeah, yeah, I could say that, yeah. Number four? It's important to, to find where you can have your own personal peace and quiet when you are fighting, living in, in, in an environment where you can relax or you feel protected or you feel safe or you feel uh, uh, like you are not exposed to the kind of dangers that you don't want to uh, deal with. I think that's very important in such times when, when, when things are so intensive. So number four, it sounds like find a place where you can get away from your troubles. Yes, yes. And number five? Well, one thing that works for me is to try to travel and, you know, if I just go to a better functioning country every few months for a few days, then I get recharged and, and uh, uh, it's not always easy to come back, but then I, I feel some more energy. So another thing is to figure out what works for you to keep your spirit up. For me, it's, it's uh, important to see that it doesn't have to be this way. You know, there are other ways of... Uh, other ways of living. So number five, go away to a place where you can be 
recharged and inspired. But yes, yes. I mean, it can be. I mean, it can be for somebody. It can be in the neighborhood. Somebody. It can be the other side of the planet. No, you have to figure it out yourself. That brings us to the end of our conversation, Dorothea. For the people who are listening to this today, what do you hope they take away from this conversation? Uh, fairyland is for everyone. <laughs> That's my message. Thank you very much, Dorothea. Thank you. Hungarian author and activist Dorothea Redeye. Well, Hannah, Jordi, what'd you think? Oh wow! Wow, such an amazing story again. Um, interesting to hear that the su- that the audio even sounds dystopic, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> but um, I, I really enjoyed her advice. You know, the five tips: keeping it small, keeping it focused, um, taking care of yourself. I think that's the that's the first thing we need to do in times like these. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's really put things into perspective as well. You know, you come out and you try to tell tell a story, and and the backlash that you can receive from that is just it's pretty crazy. I asked her actually. I mean, you must have expected this, you know. And of course, she mm-hmm. she did she did expect it. She just didn't expect it to work in her favor, <laughs> right? But it's such a beautiful approach because if you tell someone that you're being attacked over a fairy tale. You know, that makes the, the people who attack you look incredibly silly. So I think that's uh, something we could t- take away from this. But you know, Jordi, as you said at the beginning of the show, you said attacking books to, you know, save the children, to protect the children, is just par for the course, right? Mm-hmm. It's part of the playbook. Yeah. Part of the fascist playbook? Is that what you mean? I wouldn't frame it as such necessarily, but it's, it's part of a fascist playbook. <laughs> It's part of this fascist playbook. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one that Viktor Orban definitely seems to be following, that's for sure. Yeah. And, uh, any way you slice it, I think that Dorothy Redai is a really admirable person and uh, strong. If I were to like use one word to describe her, she's one of these people who uh, have a kind of a quiet strength about them. That's a really lovely way to describe her, Jonathan. I agree. Yeah. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, that's it for this episode of Coping with Dystopia. We'll put links to Dorothy Redai and her book, Fairyland is for Everyone, on our show page. Coping with Dystopia is a production of Dare to be Grey. Find out more about us and check out our inspiring stories at daretobegray.com, where you can also tell us what you think of what you heard and even suggest a topic for us to talk about. This podcast is made possible with a grant from the Rights, Equality, and Citizenship Program of the European Commission. I'm Jonathan Guber. This is Coping with Dystopia, and we hope you cope just a little better. Thanks for listening.